American children in over 140 K-12 schools indoctrinated with Chinese Communist Party's education. Angry protests break out in northern China. But what has concerned parents taking to the streets there? Two banned ballistic missiles shown off by North Korea's leader to impress a Russian minister at a weapons exhibition. And the CCP will use this technology for evil. That's the former U.S. counterintelligence chief's warning to Washington. Is Beijing capable of handling critical 21st century technology? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Are American kids getting educated by communist China? That's the warning from an anti-indoctrination group, saying they've uncovered evidence showing the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, poured millions into America's K-12 schools. The group Parents Defending Education issuing their latest report to 34 governors, key lawmakers and committee chairs on Wednesday. Their report, Little Red Classrooms, warns American children could be subject to Chinese propaganda in their own schools. That's under the pretense of cultural exchange. The report notes 143 school districts across the United States have engaged in contracts to establish Confucius Institutes in classrooms, including in three of the nation's top science and technology high schools, adding that several of them are located nearby 20 U.S. military bases. That's all to the tune of nearly $18 million of funding from 2009 through 2023. The group noted a pair of Chinese nationals who taught Mandarin in a Delaware school district during the 2012 to 2013 school year. They cited the district's webpage, which stated these teachers underwent a rigorous selection process in China, including interviews with Chinese state officials at the national level. The group warns this is part of the Chinese Communist Party's broader soft power strategy, aiming to influence policy in nations throughout the world. The group requests state and federal officials immediately investigate the scope of China's involvement, influence and access to our K-12 student information and curriculum, adding families should also have full access to view how these cultural and language immersion programs are financed. A terrorism event. That's what the former U.S. counterintelligence chief says the U.S. is facing as it navigates ties with the Chinese Communist Party. In a congressional hearing Wednesday, he said it's naive to think the U.S. would be able to come to any kind of agreement with the Chinese regime on issues around critical and emerging technologies. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on his testimony. The hearing before the House Select Committee on the CCP was called Commanding Heights, ensuring U.S. leadership in the critical and emerging technologies of the 21st century. William Evanina, former director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, was one of three witnesses who testified. I would offer to this committee that we are in a terrorism event. He says the CCP is an existential and unparalleled threat to the U.S. The former counterintelligence chief says the CCP's economic war with the U.S. has manifested itself into a terrorism framework. A slow, methodical, strategic, persistent and enduring event which requires a degree of urgency of government and corporate action. Evanina says the U.S. private sector has become the geopolitical battle space for China, as a lot of the CCP's non-conventional intel collection is performed amid business transactions and research activities. He was asked if it's fair to say there's no such thing as a truly private company in China. 
and in my experience uh, in the intelligence community the last decade, I have not seen an example of a private company that is either not owned, operated, or influenced by the Communist Party of China. Avenina recommended a new economic threat intelligence entity that would share real-time threat information with U.S. private companies to mitigate risks in doing business with China. And it has to be direct conversation with the CEOs and the boards of directors of those companies so they're aware that China's coming for their technology. Yeah. And then we should hold them accountable to protect those technologies. According to the FBI, the annual cost of the CCP's intellectual property and trade secrets thefts amounts to $225 billion to $600 billion. That's equivalent to a lost wealth of about $4,000 to $6,000 after tax value per American family of four. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As Russian and Chinese envoys set foot in North Korea for a rare visit, leader Kim Jong-un welcomed Russia's defense minister with an arms exhibition like no other. Photos shared by North Korean media Thursday showcase some highlights, including new drones and two banned ballistic missiles. Both warheads were test-launched by North Korea this year. Let's take a closer look. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un showed Russia's defense minister the country's banned ballistic missiles at a defense exhibition as the neighbors pledged to boost ties. That's according to North Korean state media on Thursday. The Russian minister, Sergei Shoigu, and a Chinese delegation led by a Communist Party Politburo member arrived in North Korea this week. They're visiting for the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War, celebrated in North Korea as Victory Day. The nuclear-capable missiles were banned under UN Security Council resolutions adopted with Russian and Chinese support. But they provided a striking backdrop for a show of solidarity by three countries united by their rivalry with the US. Shoigu is making the first visit by a Russian defense minister to North Korea since the fall of the Soviet Union. For North Korea, the arrival of the delegations marks its first major opening up to the world since the COVID-19 pandemic. North Korean media reported that Shoigu gave Kim a letter from Russian President Vladimir Putin. Kim said the visit had deepened what he called the strategic and traditional relations between North Korea and Russia. North Korean media said Kim expressed the belief that, quote, the Russian army and people would achieve big successes in the struggle for building a powerful country. Local media reports on KCNA did not refer to the war in Ukraine. But North Korea's defense minister, Kang Sun Nam, was reported as saying North Korea fully supported what he called Russia's battle for justice and to protect its sovereignty. North Korean media said Kim also met Chinese Communist Party Politburo member Li Hongzhong for talks. Protests sparking in northern China starting last week. <laughs> Angry parents demanded authorities give their children a fair chance at an education. NTD spoke to one of them on the scene. To protect his identity, we've distorted his voice. I think there were about 400 people or even more. I saw police officers in front of the state agency receiving protesters. There were about 100 of them. These parents said they're angry about the unfair distribution of educational resources. According to them, over 40,000 students from nearby Henan province came to the area to take their high school exams. And because of it, these students pushed up the cutoff score for local high schools, making it harder for local kids to get accepted. Authorities arrested at least 10 people for alleged fraud and said they are investigating the education companies involved.
After dedicating years to get a college diploma, a growing number of young adults in China are taking on the role of caregiver for their parents and diverting from their intended career paths to do it. Let's zoom in. Full-time children. The phrase describes a so-called job that pays kids for taking care of their parents, where grown-up children stay at home. An expert gives his take on the situation. The invention of the term full-time children is just another way of saying large numbers of young people are unemployed. According to official data released this year, China's unemployment rate exceeds 21 percent. That means almost 2.5 million college students can't find a job in China. Though a professor at one of China's top institutes, Peking University, anticipates that the true figure is pushing 50 percent, double the number released by Beijing. According to a Chinese job hunting agency, 13.3 percent of recent graduates are now classified by the term. On a Chinese social media platform, over 4,000 users shared posts or comments discussing their experiences as full-time kids. Some claimed it to be a short-term phrase, while others suggest it could be a lifestyle choice. Chinese society is undergoing distortion, and this includes the distortion of values. Under Beijing's three-year zero-COVID-19 policy, strict lockdown measures interrupted economic activities on a mass scale. Many small to medium-sized businesses shut down. And with supply chains paused, many foreign companies operating in China started seeking greener pastures, shifting production to other nations. Now China's job market is wounded more severely than ever, and the country's youth are feeling the impacts. A leading China critic is calling for a values-based economic alliance. That's to defend against Chinese aggression. It comes after a recent report highlighted how China is looking for an advantage in a global values struggle. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has the report. Democracies have failed to stand up to China and have instead let go of their principles. That's according to Jianli Yang, founder and president of Citizen Power Initiatives for China. He says it's difficult to confront China on human rights issues and that democracies have been dropping their values for one main reason. China has no moral authority. The only power it has is money. And uh, its model, you know, its money power actually is appealing everywhere in the world. Yang is calling for the formation of a so-called values-based economic NATO to guard against China. Nations in this alliance would support each other economically if China tries to punish them for standing up for their values. When one of the countries was attacked economically by China because of value-related conflict, other countries come to help. For example, in 2020, Australia called for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. China responded to this by punishing Australia with steep trade tariffs such as on wine. Coming to Australia's defence, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China launched a campaign urging people to buy Australian wine. Similar campaigns have emerged when China attempted to punish other nations like Lithuania. But these campaigns are isolated. Yang says they should be a broad and united initiative. So I think these models deserve to be institutionalized. That, that is why I advocate for a value-based economic NATO. Yang says nations will find that economic relations with China will affect their national security. And he adds that with the possibility of China invading Taiwan, it's vitally important to have a values-based economic NATO already prepared and set up. Malcolm Hudson, 
NTD News, London. Another big story to look out for, a controversial Chinese naval base reportedly near completion in the Indo-Pacific. Satellite images show the pier wide enough to host aircraft carriers. What's even more surprising, it's striking resemblance in design and size to China's overseas base in Djibouti, East Africa. Could the new base give China an upper hand in a potential conflict with Washington? That report and more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. But coming up today, competitors, adversaries or enemies. The strategic competition between the U.S. and China is becoming increasingly risky as both sides begin framing their relationship as a rivalry. How should the U.S. navigate a changing world order with Beijing's rising aggressions? And what effect do the colliding powers have on people's daily lives? We sat down with Doug Bandao, senior fellow at the Cato Institute for details. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Tensions soaring and ties between the world's two largest economies hanging in the balance. Under Chinese leader Xi Jinping's rule, China is trending toward more authoritarianism and assertiveness on the global stage. And Washington is pushing back from shoring up ties with allies to containing Beijing's rising influence, including in its own backyard. But the question remains, are these measures enough? And how effective will they be in navigating the escalating power rivalry between the U.S. and China? We speak to Doug Bandao, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, for more. Well, Doug Bandao, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be on. Seems right now there's a lot of focus on potential rising aggressions with China. We're calling them a competitor, an adversary. How do you view what's happening here? Well, China's a very complex place. So the challenge for the United States is equally complex. I would look back to the era of great power politics, even going before World War I, where you had a number of major countries that would at times trade with one another. They might go to war with one another. They might have very vigorous economic uh, competition. You know, they'd be allies uh, in some situations, then they'd be antagonists in another. And I think that's kind of the world we're moving back to. The U.S. coming out of World War II was the leader of kind of the anti-Soviet bloc. It was the most powerful nation. We're used to that. The world we're moving into is simply a messier world. What would happen if China or Beijing were to invade Taiwan? How would that, say, complicate a U.S. response? Well, it would complicate it not only from an American standpoint, but an allied standpoint. Europe does enormous amounts of uh, you know, trade with China. East Asian allies do trade with China. Quite honestly, a war in East Asia that would almost certainly result in sinking of merchant ships, no one would try to sail through that uh, you know, area of the ocean, would result in a kind of economic catastrophe. You would imagine major, major trading uh, routes being disrupted. China would suffer greatly. Where would it get its oil? You know, what kind of oil shipments, its trade? But also you imagine uh, you know, Africa, imagine Europe. I mean, it would be an utter economic catastrophe.
We had, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal. You have right now all these high-level U.S. cabinet members going over to China, bowing to the Chinese counterparts, kind of making it seem like the U.S. is the one begging for help from China. How are allies or potential allies viewing that? Quite honestly, if you want the or Europeans to work with America, you've got to convince them that the U.S. has done as much as it can to solve problems diplomatically. So if the Europeans and if the South Koreans and the Japanese, Indians and others perceive the U.S. as being hardline and won't talk to China, that actually will make it harder for us to get the support of other nations. And to me, that is the big issue. If we want to take on China, the U.S. wants to do it with friends, not alone. And that is going to be very tough. A lot of these countries don't want to make a choice. So with these, say, latest examples, with Secretary of State Antony Blinken going over, being seated at, say, the end of the table, whereas when Bill Gates was there, they were just right next to, he was right next to Xi Jinping. You have uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen bowing multiple times, kind of looking like the supplicant in this case. What is that doing in terms of the Chinese side? Do they think they have the upper hand? How would they read that? I think the irony here is that while the Chinese look at that as a symbolic victory, I believe the Chinese are very nervous. I mean, on economics, the U.S. is a dominant position on semiconductor chips. You know, the, uh, the sanctions the president has put in have a major impact on the Chinese economy. Now, there's going to be cheating and other sorts of stuff. But in the end, they really are hurting from this. It makes them very nervous. The Chinese don't have anywhere near the economic power of the United States. When the Chinese try to sanction somebody, all they can say is, we're not going to buy from you. The U.S. can do secondary sanctions, and we do financial sanctions. The U.S. is really capable of hurting other countries. So part of this, I think, is kind of bravura. That is, that the Chinese are trying to puff themselves up because they recognize they are really hurting. And, and I think all the evidence is the Chinese economy is not nearly good a shape as they want us to believe. It looks like they can easily head towards a recession. It seems especially under Xi Jinping, he's kind of doing this return to Mao Zedong, right? This ramping up of the rhetoric, kind of moving away from the opening up that was under Deng Xiaoping. How does that fit in with, say, Taiwan and the U.S. by law having to help Taiwan defend itself? How does that fit in? Well, Xi Jinping, yeah, I, I mean, I do think in many ways he's moving back towards Maoism. Now, the big difference is he doesn't want chaos. I mean, he lived through the Cultural Revolution. He spent time in the countryside. His father, you know, was uh, in disgrace, one of the top, one, I mean, one of the elites, but, you know, fell out with Mao. He doesn't want all that. But what he's clearly decided, he wants supreme power for the party and for himself. And that is what he's doing. I mean, the entire Chinese ruling establishment. So that's why I try to tell Americans, this is very dangerous. We should, we should have no illusions here. We need to treat this very carefully because they really are serious about this. But I think it, certainly until now, they've also been very pragmatic. They don't want a war. They understand that would be a disaster. So my hope is you kick it down the road, you try to calm it down. That's what we need. If you're sitting in Beijing, you know your political legitimacy is tied to economics, and you know if you start a war, even if you win, the consequences will be catastrophic. You might not survive politically. To me, that is one of our hopes there. And with all of the things you laid out, we're also seeing, say, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, yes. or East Turkestan, as yes. they call it. With all of this, do you see maybe 
enough in-party fighting or in-party unhappiness that the Communist Party could even implode in a way? Well, I think there are two things that could happen. One is you could imagine the Communist Party itself <coughs> failing. I think probably more likely is to see a radical turn within the Communist Party. Uh, and I, I think it's important for us to realize where they're at today does not mean that's the end point. We, we don't want them running around our country going after people and spying and a lot of other stuff. We need to challenge those things. But the question is at what point you know, do you kind of step back? Where are the places where you allow things to move? You accept the fact it's not a good relationship but it would be worse to break it? How do we try to move it in the right direction? A lot of those I don't have a good answer but I do think that that requires us to think, let's play the long game. People talk about, oh, China, oh, oh, they think in centuries and all this. Oh, please, right? Mao Zedong thinking in centuries. Man, this man's slaughtering people, you know, while he's in, this is, this is not the, the far-seeing. No, we need to do that. We need to be thinking about how do you undermine that system without violence? How do you reach the Chinese people beyond the party? How do you make the case for a liberal economic system, a liberal political system. How do you make the case for freedom? We need to do that, and not just us, but friendly countries and others. I think we win that argument. And just really quickly on that maintaining peace part, what do you make of, say, Reagan's version of peace through strength? Do we need to make sure the U.S. is still, say, maybe the biggest military power? Right now, China has more ships in their navy than us. How would we maintain that peace? Well, my view is in today's world, we need to rely more on allies. And I think we've got to make it very clear. If Japan wants to protect the Senkaku or Daiyu Islands, <coughs> they need to build a navy. If the South Koreans have 50 times the GDP of North Korea, well, why do we have troops there? I mean, in a world in which we face a lot of financial problems, we're still entangled in Europe. We're still entangled in the Middle East. This is the moment where I think the U.S. says we're there. Well, Doug Bando, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to come. Happy to be on. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.